morning and welcome to Rising, another big show to get to today covering all the latest news with what's going on in Israel uh, given the attacks that occurred over the weekend. So I think we're going to get right to it. Take okay. us away. Right. Well, Robbie, President Biden is reportedly weighing tying legislation for more military support for Israel with military assistance for Ukraine, setting up what could be a massive showdown with House Republicans. In the days following this weekend's deadly attack by Hamas, Israel has targeted the Gaza Strip in a series of counter-strikes. The strikes have exhausted medical supplies in the region and displaced over 200,000 Palestinians. As of this morning, over 2,500 people have been confirmed dead in the fighting, including 11 Americans. President Biden warned more U.S. citizens are likely among the untold number of hostages taken by Hamas. Meanwhile, Secretary of State Antony Blinken tweeted and then deleted a statement calling for a ceasefire between the IDF and Hamas, which could be a sign that U.S. backing for the Israeli military action is, in fact, very, very solid. The White House was lit up in the colors of the Israeli flag overnight in a show of the Biden administration's support on the remaining questions of how intelligence organizations missed the Hamas attacks in the first place, Egyptian intelligence officials are alleging that Israel ignored repeated warnings of, quote, something big. One Cairo official said Israel is focused on West Bank instead of Gaza, a claim which Netanyahu's office denies. This is, according to a Times of Israel report. And new this morning, Russian President Vladimir Putin has made his first public comments on the Israel-Palestine war. He said it is, quote, a clear example of the failure of the United States policy in the Middle East for not, quote, taking into account the fundamental interests of the Palestinian people and the need to implement the decision of the U.N. Security Council on the creation of an independent, sovereign Palestinian state. Okay, there's a lot to unpack there. Maybe first, um, this... This question of the aid and how the aid is going to be um, kind of pushed through, we're going to talk about this a little bit later in the context of a uh, Tucker Carlson weighing in on this. But it has been really interesting to see the kind of anti-war, anti-funding zealousness that has come to characterize a very popular segment of the Republican Party completely turn heel on this particular issue. Yes. And, and by turn heel, you know, we're talking about many of the Republican leaders and political figures. Um, I don't know that that reflects any turning or changing minds of the base of actual Republican right. voters, because what we find out time and time again is that there are hawks uh, running and leading both parties who just assume, or maybe they do know better, maybe they know that their views are not popular or they're naive about it, and they want to, you know, push f forward with an interventionist military aid package kind of plan that is never super popular with their actual supporters. And I suspect this will be another case, which, again, is not to say that um, that that it is not right or proper to be horrified by the ongoing violence, by the harming of, of innocent civilians on both sides of this conflict. Um, I, I think, I'm, I'm sure many, if not the overwhelming majority of Americans, are moved by the images they're seeing on social media and, and lament it. Um, but, but in the immediate wake of a crisis, there is so much opportunity for bad policy. And we have seen the U.S. stumble into bad foreign policy. Uh, in the wake of violent attacks time and time and time again. Actually, I saw Senator Rand Paul bringing up that point um, on uh, Fox News mm -hmm. last night, being interviewed about it and saying, you know, he was being asked about Iran's culpability in all this. And he's saying, look, 
he, he accepts that Iran does have some culpability here, but we need to have an investigation. Remember when all our intelligence officials supposedly assured the Bush administration that Iraq and Hussein were involved in 9-11 and we, you know, leading us into a war that totally destabilized the region on some bad intelligence. So you can be angry, you can be shocked, you can be horrified, you can be upset, but sober policy needs to take hold. So everyone should calm down and think about what is really in the best interest of U.S. national security and, and consider what the people actually want. Yeah, and it's not just, by the way, kind of Republican leadership that, or the establishment Republicans who have offered a kind of an accelerationist view of this conflict, but even people like Tulsi Gabbard, who really made her bones being the more sanguine, like, measured peace candidate, tweeted out a response yesterday that I think maybe surprised some folks, where she said, you know, the U.S. must stand with Israel in the face of this terror attack by the Islamist terrorist group Hamas. This is just the latest example of a greater war being waged by both Sunni and Shia Islamist jihadists throughout the world. This should be a wake-up call to leaders everywhere that Islamist Sorry, it's a tongue twister the number of times she says Islamist jihadists in this tweet are the greatest short and long-term threat to the safety, security, and freedom of the American people and people throughout the world. And it really does, and we'll talk about this more later, stand in, in contrast to people like, of all people, Tucker Carlson, who've been asking a lot of more measured questions, the likes of which you expect to find on the American left, about some of the root causes of this conflict. Uh, speaking of, we referenced this yesterday, but it's worth um, getting into now that the crisis has continued to unfold, that an, uh, Riz, uh, an Israeli politician, um, Yoav Gallant, is now infamous on the internet for using what has been described uh, as genocidal language, uh, characterizing what Israel's response to the Hamas attacks should be. He called for a, quote, complete siege of the Gaza Strip, which, of course, is home to 2.2 million Palestinians. Half the population there is children. I think the mean age is 14 years old. And cutting off electricity, food, fuel, everything is closed. He said, we are fighting human animals and we act accordingly. And many people have pointed out that that kind of mass response targeting civilians in that way is a war crime, as, of course, was killing the civilians uh, by Hamas in Israel, a war crime. And so then what is the public response when we, of course, are funding uh, Israel with so many billions of dollars a year, as their senior officials are explicitly saying that they plan to use weaponry that, of course, is bolstered by our support to commit a, a massive war, uh, war crime on a restrained, basically imprisoned population that is disproportionately children. Yeah. I, I, I saw someone, uh, I think, libertarian-aligned, saying on social media, you know, imagine if there was a, a, a gang in your neighborhood who had committed violence in a, in a, in a neighboring neighborhood, then came back to your neighborhood and were hiding there, and the police just started shutting off the lights and the water to everyone, mm -hmm. you'd be pretty—I mean, you'd be pretty upset from a property rights standpoint about your rights being violated. And people need to, you know, take that into consideration while still obviously recognizing that um, Israel is going to take action to, you know, to, <laughs> to attack, kill, detain, arrest the, uh, the militants who were involved in this, who, you know, took— who, violated, you, you know, bring up the Geneva Court, violated human rights or have taken um, civilians hostage and are, you know, using hostages in, in negotiation, something um, that is not, that modern civilized nations are not supposed to do. Yeah. One interesting thing about U.S. coverage that some commentators have noted is that what is considered to be a really controversial, um, provocative, even left-wing view here in the United States is the kind of debate that's happening 
very publicly on the front pages of some of Israel's main newspapers. So there was um, someone had pointed out that the discourse in, uh, I believe I might be mispronouncing it, Haaretz, uh, a major mm -hmm. newspaper there, was openly on the front page hosting editorials and op-eds and discussions about the role that imprisoning a population of two million basically in the middle of your country, on the edge of your country, well, the consequences of that absolutely are, and what role that occupation is going to play in moments of violence like the ones happened over the weekend. And isn't it in the best interest of the citizens of Israel to no longer keep people in a pressure cooker that is such an occupied territory? But what you're seeing a lot of in the United States is very similar to what we saw in the context of the Ukraine crisis, where the word unprovoked was bandied about a great deal in the hours and days after the attacks first happened, in a way that seemed to cut off any of the precipitating factors. And again, if you do that, what hope can there be of ever remedying the situation sure. and getting to a level set? Sure, although we know, we know from talking to them, we know from them stressing their views that many, many Israelis want a different policy toward the Palestinians than their government has given that, you know, I, I'm sure most people on both sides of this conflict don't hate each other and want to live together in peace. And it's unfortunate that relevant policymakers on one side and then a, and a terrorist group on the other have, um, have taken actions that escalate violence and cause innocent, unconnected people um, to suffer and die on, on both sides. And in fact, it's worth noting that part uh, of the reporting that's come out, again, of some of these Israeli papers, is about the role Benjamin Netanyahu played specifically in basically pied pipering Hamas over more secular, less, I don't know, that's the way to say it, extremist mm -hmm. groups in Palestine, knowing, articulating, this I think came out of some of the WikiLeaks releases, that if you want um, you know, if you want a continued occupation, the best way to do that is to have a militant group that is a good face for us to continue to oppress the Palestinians. You don't want a more measured, um, publicly acceptable political group, whether it's the PLO or some other more secular. Yeah, I saw some people on uh, Twitter um, <clears throat> resuscitating those claims. I, they've been reported in, in the Wall Street Journal yes. um, that it, former uh, Israeli intelligence officials involved with that um, talking about, yes, just that, their own efforts to um, to to bolster um, Hamas it's, it's, as a more—in yeah. order to delegitimize the Palestinian It does such a disservice, opposition. of course, sure. as we're seeing now with all the violence that erupted over the weekend and all of the Israeli lives that have been lost, it does an incredible service to the people that he's supposed to be safeguarding as a leader of that, of that country. So uh, I'm sure we'll continue to find out more as uh, the conflict uh, develops. I don't see any uh, regrettably end in sight. So stick with us, and we'll have more rising for you right after this. President Joe Biden voluntarily sat in for an interview as part of the independent investigation being conducted by the Department of Justice into his handling of classified documents. White House spokesperson Ian Sams confirmed it late Monday, writing in a statement, quote, as we have said from the beginning, the president and the White House are cooperating with this investigation. And as it has been appropriate, we have provided relevant updates publicly, being as transparent as we can, consistent with projecting and preserving the integrity of the investigation. Special Counsel Robert Hur questioned the president Sunday and Monday. 
The DOJ launched its probe after trove of sensitive documents from his time as Obama's vice president, as well as from his tenure as U.S. senator, were found in his possession at the end of last year. This investigation is entirely separate from DOJ's probe of Donald Trump's alleged mishandling of classified documents. Yeah. So. This feels almost quaint at this point, this particular <laughs> investigation. Yeah. Uh, because it, so much has happened since we were talking about this last August. Well, and both Biden and Trump, frankly, have more important, weightier um, investigation things happening yes. than the document stuff. Yes, but ironically, purely due to Trump's own just own goaling it here, it is one of the uh, indictments against him that is most likely to yield result to, to be successful, I should say. Sure. So even though it's substantively sort of a nothing Trivial. burger, <laughs> exactly, it is a big issue for him personally in terms of his kind of legal culpability. As a reminder, as a refresher, um, Biden's document issues were this. This was the the you know. I left the boxes next to my Corvette uh, mm -hmm. kind of a situation. And at the time, when the raid on Mar-a-Lago first happened last August, a lot of people were pointing to the fact that Mike Pence had retained documents, Joe Biden had retained documents, Hillary Clinton very famously had retained documents, and they were characterizing the Trump Mar-a-Lago raid as a witch hunt and evidence of him being the subject of a political prosecution. And you can start to understand that logic until you start to look more closely at and remind yourself of what Donald Trump did to, uh, you know, obstruct justice. So the Trump raid was at the end of a two-year investigation. The National Archives first started asking Trump to return missing presidential records in May of 2021. So that's just a couple of months, a few months after he's out of office. It took eight months for some of his aides to return 15 boxes to the National Archives. So that was in January of 2022. At that point, the National Archives realized that 14 of the 15 boxes that had been returned contained classified documents, and it then opened up an investigation a couple of months later and issued a subpoena that required uh, Trump to return all the documents. That was May of last year. Now, he didn't comply. And that was the fundamental issue, right. is that he didn't comply. There was some evidence that he tried to hide and destroy these documents, which is now, we've all seen the videos of the documents in the bathroom and the people moving the documents from room to room and all of that. And so finally in August, there was yeah. a raid on Mar-a-Lago. I will say recently there was an attempt by the media to make this seem more significant again by saying that there was reporting that he had shared some of the classified materials with an Australian billionaire. Um, and uh, about information about U.S. nuclear subs. Mm. Um, so I saw that report in a couple of places, but then CBS News debunked it and said, actually, there's no evidence whatsoever that he did that. Those, th that is not, that allegation is not, he's not being charged with that. Um, so I, I think there's been a kind of, you know, attempt to, to, to make the story sexier or more interesting. Yeah. Because as you're right, it's, it's pretty much a slam dunk, but it's just not very important. So if there was some evidence that he did something more nefarious, with the documents, that would make it. Um, I, I think. I think many in the media would love that, but yeah, that I mean, has not emerged. I think that cuts both ways. In some ways, the story of look, Joe Biden's complying. Joe Biden's sitting down and, and being interviewed. You know, it 
it helps to underscore what was so frustrating, I think, to many Trump supporters at the time, which is that he keeps making it more difficult for people to support him. He keeps jeopardizing his own chances at getting in the White House for people who substantively want him to be there for reasons that I don't agree with, but it's their right, over the most trivial, ridiculous things in the world. And here's Joe Biden, who in the view of many Americans on both sides of the aisle, doesn't seem physically or cognitively ready for office, but manages to just go in there, sit down, do the interview, perform his functions without all of this brouhaha. And there is a way that I think that this moment is reflecting a weird kind of choice that people are going to be asked to make in the general election. Do you want someone who manages to hoist themselves by their own petard constantly and put you in the position of having to defend ridiculous things, even if you substantively agree with them, or the guy who just kind of shuffles along and isn't causing you much many problems, at least in the yeah. in the media sense of the things, no matter you know, whatever you think about his foreign well, policy. Well I mean Republican or like primary that. voters are saying yes. Yeah. <laughs> we we Trump is our guy. We want Trump. He's our standard bearer. And so far, that's that. Again, there's, maybe there will be some shakeup um, down the road, but but not yet. But then also, in, you know, in terms of the Biden um, classified documents investigation, um, you know, we're, I worry, and probably many Republicans worry that right, the, the trivial stuff gets taken very seriously when it, it, what what Republican voters actually care about is whether there was influence peddling involving Hunter Biden. So, you know, they're going to vet this. This that doesn't matter very much. You know, they're going to do a real professional job here, um, but less so so far on the stuff that well, actually Well, look, matters. it's a Republican House, and right now the House's failure to pursue any kind of investigation on anything has a lot well, to do was with McCarthy, the— Well, that was McCarthy's uh, last-ditch effort to save himself was, look, we can't even, we can't even uh, impeach—do uh, an impeachment investigation of Joe Biden unless you uh, preserve me as Speaker, and that was not enough to save him. Yeah. So. Well, Special Counsel Jack Smith and his team of prosecutors are pushing back on Trump's request to delay his trial on illegal possession of classified documents, citing that there's, quote, credible justification to push it back. Trump's legal team requested the judge presiding over the case to push back the trial date from March of next year until after the 2024 election. Yeah, he's been um, thwarted so far, I think, in all of those efforts to delay the various trials. So... It's gonna it's gonna go on during campaign season, and look, I think that's going to have an impact. I, I I keep saying this, but for Donald Trump to win the presidency again, so one strategy is just to count on people who voted for Biden just not showing up and not voting. Okay, maybe that that's one strategy, and you're gonna have to rely on that partly. But look, Republicans have to understand that he did lose last time. If you wanted to win this time, he needs to make an affirmative case to voter, swing voters to the, to the working class, uh, the union voters, like the people striking in Detroit, voters in Pennsylvania, voters in these Rust Belt states, and then also voters in Arizona and Georgia who seem to have fallen out of love with Trump specifically because of the things he said about um, the election. He needs to bring those people back into the fold. And if, he, he's, if his time is taken up by multiple trials in which he is defending his conduct and the things he said and did with respect to the election, I just think that's very tricky um, and, yeah. and is going to be more of a blow to his reelection than people think. Obviously, the people already who support him are fired up and riled up by how he's being treated, but 
Republican primary voters have to understand that there's not enough of them to get Trump elected in a general election unless he can make an affirmative case about his economic policies, his foreign policies, what he is going to do differently than, than Donald Trump or th than Joe Biden. And I think he has a case to make. I think he has a lot of things to say, but he's going to be uh, limited in that opportunity because of these trials. Well, especially if he starts moonlighting as Speaker of the House. <laughs> <laughs> his, his schedule is just going to be I'm so fun. busy. <laughs> <laughs> oh All right. my goodness. Stick around. We're rising to you after this. That's why I'm here today. I'm here to declare myself an independent candidate. That was Robert F. Kennedy Jr. announcing his defection from the Democratic Party to run for president as an independent. In his fiery speech, RFK Jr. declared independence for America from corporations, from Wall Street, and from Big Pharma, which he maintains is stoking division in this country. His quest to bring an end to the two-party system was not welcomed by his immediate family. His sister, Carrie Kennedy, released a statement on their behalf, rebuking his announcement and writing, quote, Bobby might share the name as uh, a same name as our father, but he does not share the same values, vision, or judgment. Today's announcement, deeply saddening for us. We denounce his candidacy and believe it to be perilous for our country. The Republican, Republican National Committee also denounced RFK Jr.'s switch. Chairwoman Ronna McDaniel released a statement writing, quote, Make no mistake, a Democrat in independence clothing is still a Democrat. RFK Jr. cannot hide from his record. He is your typical elitist liberal, and voters won't be fooled. As a Democratic candidate, polls showed that RFK Jr. tracked well with voters, pulling in 14 percent, according to a Reuters Ipsos poll released last week, which may not seem consequential, but it's enough to disrupt GOP frontrunner Trump's support, as well as President Joe Biden's, according to an analysis from CNN. This is what's so interesting. So there was some reporting at the end of last week that the Trump campaign had um, had some internal conversation about how to best respond to RFK Jr. after some of the, this polling suggested that he could pull more potentially from Donald Trump than Joe Biden. There was a statement by one of uh, Trump's campaign spokesperson, Stephen Chung, he's, who said in no uncertain terms that RFK Jr. is not a conservative. He says voters should not be deceived by anyone who pretends to have conservative values. The fact is that RFK has a disturbing background steeped in radical liberal positions, whether he's a China sympathizer, denigrating gun owners, promoting business-killing green policies, or supporting on-demand abortion. An RFK candidacy is nothing more than a vanity project, a liberal for a liberal candidate to cash in on his family's name. We haven't seen this kind of energy against RFK Jr. from Republicans up until this point. Well, Did now they think? perceive him as a threat. Exactly. <laughs> they didn't perceive him as a threat before. And look, the truth is that he has, at this point, a mix of political opinions that do not, frankly, fit neatly into any category. He has some opinions that are welcome on the populist left. He has some opinions that are uh, more uh, conservative in nature. He has a lot of his COVID-related opinions, and some, but not all, of his foreign policy opinions fit somewhat within a libertarian framework, which is why he was drawing a lot of interest from uh, my own party. He attended a lot of libertarian gatherings in the last few months. He was clearly meeting with libertarian-aligned people. Um, he had a lot of engagement on social media with the LP account. Um, th that said, his his 
what he announced about Israel uh, the other day, you know, support for additional military funding, really is at odds with a kind of fundamental view of the Libertarian Party that you should not, that we should just not, you know, without, again, without taking a side in the conflict, it's just, that's not it. It's just the U.S. should not be in the business, the U.S. taxpayer should not be in the business of paying for another country's defense. Um, so, so they were pushing back on him um, there. So anyway, he's running as an independent. I, look, it is possible that he hurts Trump more than Biden. Um, it's possible he hurts Biden slightly more because of the Kennedy family name and being associated with Democrats. It's possible that he draws some voters from both sides and it's kind of a wash. And also he, he draws some voters who would have voted libertarian, green, or just would not have voted at all, frankly. So everybody needs to chill out. I also don't, frankly, care if he costs a major party um, voters, because they're not speaking to the issues he's talking about in terms of COVID authoritarianism and some other things. So, uh, so I, I don't really think there's a reason to panic. But if there was a reason to panic, I frankly wouldn't care if it hurt the major parties yeah, either that's way. That's so interesting. I mean, much like wokeness seems to have taken a back seat in as a as a kind of driver of the conversation on the right. It does seem also like some of the COVID policy stuff seems not to be as galvanizing. Well, I mean, they are going away. Thankfully, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, that's the thing. It, it was a bell that could only be rung so many times. I mean, yeah. A, a caveat that it's not actually gone away. You can feel how you feel about how serious it is, and people feeling like they need to protect themselves in different ways. So we don't. Well, have I mean, to the, the policies have mostly the, gone the by mandated. The yes, the, the, the objectionable. Mostly, not entirely, but mostly. Have gone away. So there's nothing really to complain about anymore. And it's also worth noting that when we talked yesterday about the Libertarian Party Twitter account, at least offering. Um, basically rejecting RFK Jr. on the internet uh, a couple of days ago. It wasn't just because RFK Jr. kind of expressed support for Israel. Many people, including many leftists who have been strong advocates for uh, Palestinian rights, uh, expressed a support of Israel and the, 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 the civilian casualties that, of course, were not responsible uh, and were innocents and were victims of a war crime, but they also say things about wanting to get to the root causes and ending the occupation. That's not only not something that RFK Jr. has said, mm -hmm. which angers the left, it makes him unsupportable by many leftists, but also said, we must provide Israel with, with whatever it needs to defend itself. Again, some, some of this kind of blank check language that he and others found so objectionable when it came to Ukraine. And I do wonder if at this point, not, not saying anything about ending the occupation, having said so many things that are frankly very, very aggressive with respect uh, to the Israel-Palestine issue, um, the funding issue being inconsistent with respect to the Ukraine stuff. Someone being someone who labeled themselves as a Kennedy Democrat up until three days ago or whatever it was on their website, and who very much was hoping to trade on this popularity of a liberal identity, which is now very toxic to both sides of the camp, the anti-establishment camp that he was appealing to, whether or not this whole phenomenon is going to fizzle away pretty quickly, especially if it is true that he is seen as a threat to Republicans and is no longer given the boost by people like Elon Musk, um, or uh, other big accounts, Joe Rogan, et cetera. I saw our former co-host, Kim Iverson, um, who has her own channel, Independent Channel, and, and she's been, I think, quite positively disposed to him. She's interviewed him on her show. I saw her tweeting that um, this really would cost um, cost her uh, cost him her support mm -hmm. for, for what he said there. Look, and I don't want to be 
too critical of him. I'm, I'm glad that he has brought attention um, to uh, a lot of issues where I am more in line with him. Again, in terms of the COVID stuff, in terms of Ukraine, I, I'm glad he has given a voice to, um, uh, and, and hopefully a voice not technically actually in the Republican contingent, but you know, expressing the frustrations of there are people who self-identified or used to self-identify at least <clears throat> as Democrats um, who didn't quite like the response on all fronts either. So I, I think um, he and also, you know, Joe Biden deserved a challenger. All our political figures deserve Absolutely. a challenger. So um, I, I think he's his involvement was positive and could continue to be positive, but I don't agree with him on everything. And I, sir, I didn't agree with him on everything even before this. I, his, a lot of his regulatory policies on energy and drugs are probably more in line with your views and not in line with mine. And it was always going to be interesting to see, well, how much is he, is he changing his mind on those enough to be acceptable to a libertarian? And that was you know, always going to be a difficult um, marriage. Well, but. it was interesting. I think the most important, perhaps, and most relevant uh, prong of his analysis and what he's been running on is the anti-corruption piece, which hasn't got as much airing by the media, because I do think that some of the more right-leaning outlets that boosted his campaign weren't as interested in some of that stuff. Um, corporate capture of the regulatory industry wasn't as sexy as some of the COVID policies yeah. and stuff like that. But... You know, given what's going on in the House, with this weird alliance emerging between Matt Gates and Rokana over some of these big-ticket anti-corruption items, I would love to hear him start to talk about real politics and give us a sense of who he would be as a president. What side of this would he be on as we're looking at Matt Gates taking these stands on the House floor, calling out corruption and getting booed by his own caucus? Where does Kennedy fit in all of that? And I think it would also help the voter, perhaps, to see him less as a kind of popular figure, a cartoon, you know, an icon, whatever it is, like almost like a, car a, a caricature of a person, and more as a politician in a role that he is actually advocating for right now as president. So um, we'll see if we see a pivot at all towards some real politics now that he has made this shift uh, in his campaign. Yeah. To be an independent. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see also as this continues what impact um, he does have on the race. If his poll numbers go up or down, you know, if, if they go up enough that he could qualify, maybe I think it would be <laughs> to the benefit of the American people if there was actually a debate with the, the nominees, assuming they're Donald Trump and Joe Biden or whoever they are, but probably those two, and uh, Kennedy, I think that would be enormously beneficial for the democratic process. So, um, you know, that's one reason to kind of uh, to keep an eye out for him, I think. I do think uh, there, there might be some interesting implications for his ability to get onto a debate stage now that he's an independent and not just competing with the, de right. the Democratic Party as well. So we'll keep you updated on that. Stick around. We're rising right after this. Is the mainstream media defending Canada for honoring their former Nazis? <laughs> that was not on our 2020 bingo card. But alas, here we are following Canada's House of Commons honoring a former SS soldier, Yaroslav Hunka. A recent political op-ed states that history is complicated because, quote, fighting against the USSR at the time didn't necessarily make you a Nazi, just someone who had an excruciating choice over which of these two terror regimes to resist. The op-ed makes the case that it's true that Hunka should have never been invited to Canada's House of Commons, but not because he himself might be guilty of any crime, but because history is 
complex. In recent reporting, journalist Matt Taibbi begs the question, is this the worst op-ed in history? And writes, Politico gives National Socialism its finest makeover since springtime for Hitler. Journalist Matt Taibbi joins us now to discuss. Great to have you back. And I apologize, I think, for my misuse of the phrase, beg the question there. That's not what you're doing. Uh, you're raising important questions about what is going on with this op-ed. Uh, please educate us. Yeah, I, I've never been able to clear up exactly how to use that <laughs> phrase, but so it's okay. Yeah, I get it wrong, too. Uh, so, uh, so tell us more about this story. Yeah, I mean, this is just in the wake of, of that kind of unforced error in Canada where the Canadian Parliament invites, uh, you know, a, a former member of the Waffen-SS who had a demonstrable record of this, who had blogged about it, um, and has, you know, you have these incredible video scenes of the entire parliament standing and applauding, including Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Deputy Prime Minister uh, and former colleague of mine, Christia Freeland, from a uh, former reporter from Russia. Uh, they're all applauding this person. And then the response isn't to uh, basically say we screwed up or we're sorry, but, uh, but to, you know, th there were editorials like this one basically saying, well, actually, you know, this is, it wasn't so bad to be a Nazi in this situation. I mean, there are two reasons why this editorial is crazy. One is that these are Canadians who are applauding somebody who is fighting on the other side of a war where Canadians died. Uh, and the other one is that I don't think the Nazis were terribly um, you know, interested in the subtleties of which uniform you were wearing. Um, you know, back in the day, that's, that's the whole point of why they're so villainous. So the idea that somebody who, you know, swore an allegiance to, to Hitler, it may not really be a Nazi, uh, that, that's a pretty unusual take to ever see in a, in a prestigious publication. I mean, you're right to point out that the response wasn't just a pat, I'm sorry, this is embarrassing, I made a mistake. There was this effort to kind of wrap it up in this fear-mongering about misinformation and disinformation. And weirdly, there was a statement from Trudeau that seemed to implicate that this was Russian disinformation and that we had to be careful about it. This is from folks who made the choice not just to bring this guy along, um, but to honor him and give him a standing, of, 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 uh, standing ovation. What, what did you make of the response of the Canadian government to this? And have you seen any follow-up about uh, trying to tie this to this disinformation uh, fear that's afoot? Well, this angle to it fascinates me and kind of horrifies me. You're absolutely right. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau gave, um, in the wake of this on, on Yom Kippur, he, he gave a, a short uh, sort of off-the-cuff statement where he said it was a terrible thing. He didn't personally apologize. He said that the Speaker of the Commons had apologized. Um, and then he said, but we, you know, we have to be careful to, you know, not to fall victim to Russian disinformation about this issue, as if this were uh, an episode of Russian disinformation. Now, from their point of view, what's, you know, from after a year of studying this problem and looking at the Twitter files, I know what they're thinking. They actually do believe that somebody who is in alignment uh, with the views of, for instance, um, you know, uh, anti-Ukraine sentiment or 
uh, or the or the fact that Russians may take advantage of this issue, that that means that this news is in itself disinformation. They've they've used that as a definition of it, and they've convinced some of the platforms that that's a, a, a definition of disinformation. And that's what's dangerous is that they're throwing these terms around um, when there is no disinformation here. The Russians weren't even a character in the story until Trudeau brought it up. Right, and there's um, I think it's interesting um, who gets. Uh, the how should I say this? In in which cases um, nuance is applied to the Nazi label is becoming increasingly interesting. I mean, you have like in some circumstances, like everyone on the right sort of being described as Nazi. You know, anyone who supports Trump, but uh, by by the misinformation crowd, the people who are countering misinformation. But then when you have cases of you know actual, I mean, there there are. It's it's true. It's not it's not misinformation to say it. Actual cases of Nazi-aligned fighters on, for instance, the Ukrainian side, the side that the counter misinformation people support. Then it's like, well, it's complicated, and we we need to understand the history. And you know, which that's fine, true. I, I get that. But the benefit of the doubt, or the greater nuance, is not applied to the enemies or the the opponents of this cast of characters. Yeah, I mean, Justin Trudeau just uh, over a year ago was describing the Canadian truckers um, in negative terms for having Precisely. You know, people who who, who brandish swastikas. When actually, if you look at those pictures, it, it was almost entirely people who were waving pictures of swastikas and accusing the Canadian government of being Nazis. Uh, so they were invoking the imagery, yes, but they were doing it in a way to try to criticize the Canadian government. In the case of Ukraine, it, it is a little bit complicated. Look, I, I, there are, there are neo-Nazis on both sides of this affair. I, I remember covering uh, skinhead marches outside of soccer uh, games in Russia. There was a burgeoning uh, far-right neo-Nazi movement uh, even back in the early 2000s. But to just flat out ignore uh, some of the, the, the use of this imagery or to say that it's not uh, really not, uh, Nazism or in, in the case of this actual you know, uh, soldier, Yaroslav Hunka, who literally was a Nazi, that this is not actually you know, uh, Nazism, that, that uh, comparison is pretty graphic uh, between those two things. Part of this seems to be driven by a refusal or, let's say, some, uh, some awkward tension around the reality of the heavy lift that the, the Soviet Union played in helping us to defeat Nazism, losing 27 million-odd soldiers in that effort, and having to kind of retrofit that reality into the contemporary context in which it is um, seditious to say anything nice about anything that ever happened in Russia, d done by a Russian. Uh, the Russian uh, tea room over on uh, Connecticut Ave got shut down after the war. People were trying to ban uh, Tolstoy. I mean, this is the environment where we're in, but the, the trying to retcon the Soviet Union's contributions to World War II does seem to be, to me, to be one of the more galling aspects of this. Well, right. And some of that is understandable because, of course, the history there is that uh, the Soviet Union initially concluded a, a one of the most cynical treaties in history, uh, the, the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, where the Soviets and the, the National Socialists, who were absolute abject ideological enemies, they uh, sort of a, concluded a, a, a non-aggression uh, treaty between the two of them, which Hitler then broke, 
bringing uh, the Soviet Union onto our side of the war. But the Russians and the Soviets uh, suffered unimaginable horrors during World War II to degrees that I think Americans don't really understand. Uh, the scale of, of the death and the suffering was such that for generations later, there was a deficit of men in uh, in the Soviet Union. It was difficult for women to find people to marry because there was there were so many people had been killed during World War II, um, and this continues to have a ripple effect throughout Russia today. Uh, and I, I think Americans don't, and Canadians probably don't remember uh, exactly how difficult that war was uh, for the Soviet Union, for the people of the Soviet Union, not necessarily for the government, but for the people. Yeah, the people are always the ones that suffer in these conflicts, something we're uh, remembering, recalling very much right now, given what's going on in Israel. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. House Republicans are furious with Representative Matt Gates after he led the siege to unseat former Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy. Matt Gates is, uh, frankly, a vile person, all right? He's not somebody who's willing to work as a team. He stands up there, he grandstands, he lies directly to, to folks. I'm not backing anyone until we deal with the fact that we have people in our conference who could shut this house down on a whim again. We're not here to accommodate eight people who just kicked us in the shins really bad. They don't support our party. In a sense, it's all about media clicks. Gates's proverbial coup has angered GOP members so much that they're debating doing away with the motion to vacate rule. Some are intent on changing the rule so that rebel Republicans cannot again join with the Democratic minority to force out a speaker. A group of 45 House Republicans signed on to an open letter last week calling for changes to the rule, writing, it's our responsibility to identify the right person at this moment to lead us into the future to achieve the conservative policy objectives that we and the American people all share. We cannot allow our majority to be dictated to by the alliance between the chaos caucus and the minority party that will do nothing more than guarantee the failure of our next speaker. Mm -hmm. Well, the letter continued, the injustice we all witness cannot go unaddressed lest we bear responsibility for the consequences that follow. Our conference must address fundamental changes to the structure of our majority to ensure success for the American people. The Republican Main Street Caucus put out a statement last week reading, the ability for one person to vacate the Speaker of the House will keep a chokehold on this body through 2024. Personal politics should never again be used to trump the will of 96 percent of House conservatives. But others who fought for the rule are defending it. Texas Congressman Chip Roy posted this on X on Friday. The rule should remain. It's an historic, institutional, and important tool for individual members to exercise their right to represent constituents and not be steamrolled by the establishment. It was a central issue in our fight in January to end the swamp's stranglehold. Um, of, yes, of course, the establishment party members want to get rid of this rule uh, and are inconvenienced by Matt Gates and others um, actually attempting to get what their voters want uh, on, on the docket for the agenda for Congress. That's a bridge too far for many in the establishment, in both parties, frankly. But uh, I, not, not at all surprising that, oh, the chaos, it's inconvenient, it's <laughs> hoo-hoo. I mean, you, what, you're, you're not there to just, like, sit and, and go to fancy dinners and smoke cigars. You're there to, to, to fight for policies on behalf of your voters. And it's supposed to be messy. It's supposed to be parliamentary. It's supposed to be factions of people getting together on different issues. So, look, if, I, I mean, I'm sorry if you're going to, to, um, to be ignoring what 
what your voters want, and, and, they, and they could not have spoken more clearly on Ukraine funding on, on so many other issues. This is the result. Stop taking Republican voters for granted, Republican Party, and you won't end up in this position. Yeah, the proof is in the pudding. Look, the backstop of this should be that if Matt Gates or any other person who wants to pull this lever is genuinely doing so in a way that is perceived by the public as self-interested, mm -hmm. as a stunt, et cetera, well, then they're going to have to pay the price for that at the ballot box. But in fact, Matt Gates is very popular in his district. And part of the reason I think that the, um, the, the criticisms from the Republican establishment are not really landing is because they're talking about protecting the party. You heard it in some of the clips right. we played. What, what's he doing to the party? I got to protect the party. And Matt Gates has been focusing on a number of issues that are enormously popular with the public. So, yes, he's going to get inundated with negative media attention. But at the end of the day, it costs him nothing, quite literally, if he's able to maintain his seat in his district, um, if he can get the people behind him by continuing to talk about issues that are very important and popular among the general public. And I, I keep coming back to this moment. Because I think it's so emblematic of what people didn't understand about the power of these forced vote moments when the left was talking about mm -hmm. it back in 2021 and what Republicans are, are, are flailing around to trying to grasp right now. In this moment on the House floor where Matt Gates calls out corruption and highlights issues that are important to the American public and his own caucus boos him as a consequence. Let's play that clip again. When it comes to how those raise money, I take no lecture on asking patriotic Americans to weigh in and contribute to this fight from those who would grovel and bend knee for the lobbyists and special interests who own our leadership, who have, oh, boo all you want, who have hollowed out this town and have borrowed against the future of our future generations. I'll be happy to fund my political operation through the work of hardworking Americans, 10 and 20 and $30 at a time, and you all keep showing up at the lobbyist fundraisers and see how that goes for you. I reserve. So, and, co so Congress has, what, like a 17% approval rating? Yeah. And they're going to sit there and boo him for articulating what the people of this country have been wanting someone to say in that room forever? Right. And just, just asserting that he's, you know, a bit of a showboat and he's sending out a fundraising email the second he does this. And yeah, he likes to grandstand. He's on TV a lot. That can all be true. Yes, he's self-interested and self-promoting. Every single member of Congress <laughs> is like that. Every single political figure is like that. Yeah. There's nothing unique about that. He's doing it a little bit better, but I, like, I don't care. I, I don't think, uh, probably like 99.8% of the people in Congress are not people I <laughs> like personally or would like, you know, approve of their, uh, their theatrics and their optics. Sure. Um, but what ultimately matters and what should matter and does matter to the American people is what they're actually trying to accomplish. And what Matt Gates accomplished was holding McCarthy responsible for failures of leadership. And the people who want to sit comfortably in Congress without actually having to do anything don't like that. Yeah. And notably, I mentioned this in another segment, but Rokana floated a whole list of, of, yeah. of items, of issue items, that he thought that Matt Gates and he could come together and agree on. And this is, again, I think it's really important that progressives need to realize that this is a moment where potentially they should leave their caucus and be willing to cross the aisle in exchange for something material, in exchange for something that, again, the establishment Democrats also don't want. And so he laid out this five-point point plan that Gates has tweeted he is amenable to negotiating around. That includes, remember those boos? That includes banning money from lobbyists and political action committees to con congressional candidates. No wonder they're booing. 
Banning members of, of Congress from trading stocks and from ever becoming lobbyists. Remember the story we covered yesterday about how a war profiteering is off to the races and how many Congress members have, have, have bought stocks in the lead up to this conflict in both Ukraine and in the conflict in Israel-Palestine. Term limits um, for uh, Congress members, term limits for Supreme Court justices, and an ethics codes for Supreme Court justices. The Supreme Court ethics issue is, of course, another payola issue that nobody wants, like that, that the Americans don't want to happen. Yeah. So these, again, if he continues to stand behind broadly popular agenda items, then the malign Men in Congress, men and women in Congress can sit there and boo and hiss all they want. But that's—it's bringing to mind that famous saying from um, uh, FDR, I welcome their hatred. You, you, you know me by the enemies that are aligning against me. I'll quote an even better quote from Rick and Morty. Your <laughs> boos mean nothing. I've seen what makes you cheer. <laughs> More rising right after this. More than two dozen Harvard University student organizations declared in a statement on Saturday that the Israeli regime was, quote, entirely responsible for the violence in its fight against Gaza. This is according to Fox News. A joint statement from Harvard Palestine Solidarity Groups reads, we, the undersigned student organizations, hold the Israeli regime entirely responsible for all unfolding violence. Today's events did not occur in a vacuum. For the last two decades, millions of Palestinians in Gaza have been forced to live in an open-air prison. Now, student groups at Columbia and Swarthmore universities are also facing backlash for similar statements that they made condemning Israel. Also facing backlash are representatives Rashida Tlaib and Cori Bush. Representative Tlaib posted on Instagram, quote, I grieve the Palestinian and Israeli lives lost yesterday, today, and every day. I am determined as ever to fight for a just future where everyone can live in peace without fear and with true freedom, equal rights, and human dignity. The path to that future must include lifting the blockade, ending the occupation, and dismantling the apartheid system that creates the suffocating, dehumanizing conditions that can lead to resistance. Representative Bush also wrote on Saturday, quote, I am heartbroken by the ongoing violence in Palestine and Israel as part of achieving a just and lasting peace. We must do our part to stop the violence and trauma by ending U.S. government support for Israeli military occupation and apartheid. Journalist Jackson Frank, who recently became a Sixers writer for the Philly, Philly Voice, was reportedly let go following a tweet showing solidarity with Palestine in response to the team's remarks about Israel. The team wrote in a statement, we stand with the people of Israel and join them in mourning the hundreds of innocent lives lost to terrorism at the hands of Hamas. In response, Frank wrote, this post sucks. Solidarity with Palestine always. Philly Voice CEO Hal Donnelly told the New York Post Mr. Frank is no longer employed by phillyvoice.com as of today. Frank denied the New York Post's request for comment. More in censorship news. Playboy has also fired former porn star Mia Khalifa after she expressed support for Hamas following its attack on Israel. She wrote on X, on X, can someone please tell the freedom fighters in Palestine to flip their phones and film horizontal? In another now-deleted tweet, she called a photo of Hamas fighters a resistance painting. A renaissance painting. Uh, sorry, a, re a renaissance painting. Yeah, um, look, I think a lot of these statements, um, not all of them, but a lot of them are pretty... Bad. Let's start um, with the Harvard one. What's your yeah, objection? Well, I, I don't think it's true that Israel or the Israeli government is entirely is bears all and sole blame for what happened. I mean, individual people have some <laughs> have some agency here. I, a, a militant group um, attacked a a music festival, took innocent people hostage, are holding them hostage still, um, indiscriminately fired at, killed um, again civilians. Um, 
women, children, older people. That like let's not let's not entire in our in our understandable need to discuss the broader causes of the conflict, for which I certainly do think there is blame to go around, like totally whitewashing all responsibility of the people actually engaged in the violence, which is I do, which I do not believe is justifiable. What they did at all uh, is bad, and that's what the students at Harvard did, and Columbia, and a couple other places. It's interesting. Similarly, and then just wait similarly, a minute. Let's stay with Harvard okay. for a second. I have a response to that. Interestingly. That, the Harvard statement is almost identical to a statement from uh, Israel's leading newspaper's editorial board, Haaretz, which was published, I believe, on the 8th, um, so over the weekend. That statement said, the disaster that befell Israel on the holiday of Simchat Torah is the clear responsibility of one person, Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister who has prided himself on his vast political experience and irreplaceable wisdom in security matters, completely failed to identify the dangers he was consciously leading Israel into when establishing a government of annexation and dispossession, when appointing Bezel Smortrich and Itmar bin Gavir to key positions, while embracing a foreign policy that openly ignored the existence and rights of Palestinians. So both of these statements are putting—the Israel paper, um, Israeli paper says Benjamin Netanyahu, the Harvard uh, groups say the Israeli regime, but both squarely put total blame, no caveats. Now, I probably would have thrown a caveat word in there, almost all, what, something like that. But they, both of these two groups, including this major Israeli paper, put the square responsibility on the Israeli government or government actor, Benjamin Netanyahu, for both failing to anticipate this and for, for creating the conditions of two million people living in an open-air prison for years uh, and, and creating the conditions for a resistance, which, by the way, it is noted, it, occupied people have the right to resist under international law. That is a true statement of international law. Do occupied people have the right to take hostages? No. Right. So, again, the actions of the actual violent terrorist people involved well, I mean, are you, illegitimate, the, the, regardless of the broader context. Well, the right language context. is difficult. It's, it's the targeting civilians and killing civilians and taking civilian hostages that is the war crime. Yes. But the, the statements that are being made— End of sentence, period. It's just a war crime, what they've done. And they bear responsibility for that. Well, it's not end of sentence, period. Out. There are a lot of other sentences that people feel the need to articulate, <laughs> including— calling out the conditions of occupation and apartheid that have led groups like Hamas to become, frankly, the only outlet, the only political outlet for the occupied peoples in those territories. Right. And, I and partly, as we discussed in another segment, because of the choices of the Israeli government to um, uh, suppress and um, deflate the power of secular, non-radical sure. groups in favor of a group like Hamas. For sure. And we should talk about that, and we should analyze that, and those sentences should appear alongside sentences, given what just happened, condemning the actual actions of the terrorist group. Just like when we talk about Ukraine and Russia, we, we, we analyze the bad foreign policy decisions that the U.S. government has made, you know, from the 90s vis-a-vis -vis NATO and vis-a-vis -vis the antagonizing of Russia, mistakes the Ukrainian government has made in the run-up to the conflict and ongoing bad policies they're doing. Again, we should talk about that because we need to be clear-minded about foreign policy. But I would never say um, the Russia-Ukraine war is entirely the fault of, U of Ukraine or of the U.S. Again, Russia made a, a very bad and humanitarian catastrophic decision to invade the country. So I, I, think, I think nuance is required. And those st the statements from the students and then from Mia Khalifa, who's a former pornographic um, actress, I mean, her tweets were 
like coming very close to just kind of glorifying the violence that Hamas is. Yeah, it's interesting in. that you say, as long as you say, of course, killing civilians is bad, there's nothing wrong with talking about occupation, but that's exactly what Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan well, Omar did. I didn't I'm not right, so let's move on to those, those statements. My point about the Haaretz newspaper editorial board is that the controversy, controversy that is being heaped on Harvard, Larry Summers, former president of Harvard University, um, tweeted something to the effect of, I have never been more ashamed to be associated uh, with the Harvard community, or nothing in my career has ever brought me as much shame. And people, I think, appropriately responded with photos of him cavorting with Jeffrey Epstein. At the end of my Harvard career, he had to step down because he told all women science majors, of which I was one, that uh, we weren't just weren't good at STEM. That's an exaggeration of what he said. I can think of a lot of instances which were pretty shameful in his career. Um, but it's very interesting that the level of public rebuke, calls for censorship and the like that were heaped upon these uh, as like 12, 14, what was it, Harvard groups, uh, student groups, for saying exactly what is a relatively mainstream opinion on the on the in the editorial pages of Israel's leading newspaper. Now turning to what has the pushback against the Congress members, they did exactly all of the caveating language that anybody would want, and I think which is appropriate. Four or five paragraphs of statement only concluding at the end in Cori Bush's statement with a with a call to ending the occupation of Palestine. And yet she still called out and being pu uh, pushed back and called to step down on all of these things by people across the political spectrum uh, in Congress and beyond. And Rashida Tlaib was dragged all over the internet for being a Palestinian-American woman with a Palestinian flag outside of her office, for having that flag as though she's supposed to renounce her cultural identity as a consequence of a terrorist act in another country, uh, on the other side of the world. Yeah, I didn't have as much problem with those statements. Again, I, I think, and did you have any and again, with and mostly, statements? I want our our Congress, our members of Congress, to affirm that we should not send more military aid to either side of this conflict or to Ukraine or to anyone else. That's the relevant, um, you know, their personal opinions on the conflict don't really matter to me. They're the people who actually get to allocate where our funding goes. And I would like them to affirm that we're not going to draw the U.S. into a broader um, conflict. Um, as far as the students, obviously they have the right, they absolutely should have the free speech right to engage in political advocacy or to say things I think are bad or wrong or offensive, and they should not suffer consequences for that. I'm sure some people on the internet were saying, you know, they expel them or something. I, I didn't specifically see any of those, but I'm sure they're out there. Um, I don't agree with any of that. Obviously, um, I think universities in general should just not make, like, like the university comms department just should not make statements on behalf well, of the organization. Well, that wasn't the university. Well, no, no, no. What I'm saying is there's a lot of calls right now for the university to denounce those students. Because in the past, they ha universities do make put out political statements saying, "Well, we don't we don't agree with this speech, but nevertheless, we're affirming like their right to say it." Although, of course, universities violate students' free speech rights all the time. They should just not even do that part in like all circumstances. They can just reaffirm the students' free speech rights. So, I, obviously, I don't think anything bad should happen to the students, but that people are allowed to mock their bad opinions if they want, including yeah. um, Larry Summers. Sure, uh, he can, and he can get. Uh Epstein posted under every single one of his posts for the next couple of days as a consequence of doing now, so. Now, Mia Khalifa is not a—I mean, you, you, you described it as a censorship—we I, I can use the word censorship in a kind of, you know, broader context. She doesn't have um, the same kind of speech protections that, um, you know, that you do from the government or even that the students do at 
um, at various universities, um, given like the actual contract of being a student there, right, has includes some free speech language. Um, as just the employee of a company, you can be fired for having a bad political opinion. Now, whether that's good or not is a different Well, you certainly argument. can, and I'm very interested. Apparently, this um, uh, 76ers reporter is very popular in the sports reporting space. He said that the statement issued by the 76ers sucked, probably for the same reason that many people who support the rights of Palestinians think these statements suck, not because it condemns the violence against innocent Israelis, but because it ignores the violence against innocent Palestinians and the occupation that is a precursor to all of this. So he apparently does not have the right as a media figure uh, to say on Twitter, on his personal account, I don't like this statement. I stand with Palestine. That is a, it's the situation we're living in. I don't know anybody who's been fired for saying, I stand with Israel. And I think that says speaks volumes about the state of discourse around this particular issue in this country and what kind of the establishment allowance is for expressing sympathies for people in the middle of a ter terrible situation. I, I mean, there are also a lot of cases of uh, did you see, like, the statement of uh, Gretchen Whitmer, governor of Michigan? Her statement about the Israel—about what had happened was, like, so vague, you couldn't even be sure she was talking about the conflict, because she would—that's because she was afraid to upset um, lefty people. Well, she should be. I'm sorry. That's your constituency. She, Michigan has a large Arab population who have been— upset for years about the conditions, the apartheid conditions, of two million people who are living in Gaza. Like, this is the reality. I mean, if you're afraid to say the killing of, the, the targeted killing and hostage-taking of she innocent civilians She shouldn't be afraid to say that. Cori is... Bush said that in her statement. The part they're afraid to say is, I stand against the occupation of, of, of Gaza. That's the part they're all afraid to say, because they know that's contrary to American foreign policy. I don't think that's what Gretchen Whitmer was afraid to say, but we will continue uh, covering this, including some more statements from some more folks in just a minute, more rising statements. members of the United Auto Workers Union are on strike after a deal with heavy truck manufacturer Mack Trucks fell apart. Last week, a tentative agreement had been reached in the last hour before deadline, barely avoiding a strike, but 73 percent of union members rejected the proposed deal over the weekend and went on strike Monday. UAW's President Sean Fain applauded the workers in a statement writing, quote, I'm inspired to see UAW members at MAC holding out for a better deal and ready to stand up and walk off the job to win it. Included in their asks is a pay raise, higher signing bonuses, and better PTO. The president of MAC Trucks said in a statement he is surprised and disappointed. So he went on in that statement to say that he thinks they were bargaining in good faith, et cetera. But the main concern, it seems, for the striking workers is that the raise that was offered was simply too small to keep up with inflation. So I'm seeing a lot of people— How small? 19 uh, percent. Okay. Yeah. So the reality is, as we've talked about in the context of the uh, initial group of striking UAW workers— they agreed to take a lot of hits to their pension and pay back uh, during the recession, and they never recovered at the same time that the CEO pay has gone out of control. Uh, I think it was a 20, what, it was a 25 percent raise, and so they were saying it should be commensurate for us, the people who are actually working in the factories. I thought the to, UAW people were offered up to a 40 percent raise. Oh, know? maybe that was it. Yeah. Maybe that was it. Um, maybe the 25 is the $25 million a year that the CEO pay was. Maybe that, <laughs> those are the numbers that I'm confusing in my head. But regardless, 
Um, in this instance, it seems that it was pretty near, it's not near, you know, not unanimous, but 73% of people voting to reject the contract is pretty significant. This wasn't even really uh, a close one. And apparently in some uh, online forums, there you can find workers, it was this reported, I think, by Reuters, complaining that the offered raise just wasn't anywhere near uh, high enough uh, to justify taking it. So what do you make of this? I mean, they can do whatever they want, obviously. It seemed like a lot of them didn't think that was enough. I guess I wonder if it was twice that, if it was 40%, but if that was a different, the UAW's uh, group rejected that as well, um, which seemed like a pretty sizable uh, amount to me. But again, they can strike for whatever they want. And uh, I, I do think the, you know, the, again, the auto sector benefited from a lot of public money back during that catastrophe and um, and thus has not, you know, the, the companies themselves have not exactly endeared themselves to me and probably the American taxpayers, what they took. So I, I understand people thinking it's not quite fair um, for the people at the top to be raking it in while the pay has stagnated supposedly for the employees. And I guess it'll continue until they've reached a better deal. Other uh Factors that are at play in the negotiation are apparently, in addition to wage increases, obviously, cost of living allowances, job security, pensions, prescrip prescription drug coverage, and overtime. It is interesting how much um, health care costs often figure into these negotiations. Um, and in fact, at some point, points historically, unions' ability to secure health care coverage for workers has created a wedge between some union leadership and the advocacy for universal health coverage because kind of, but for unions, that's one of the things that they were able to offer um, that was most significant to their cohort. If it was now like a government-provided um, resource, the, gov the union has less that they can say that they're actually fighting for. That's not an issue in this case. Well, but it for, is for public unions, often the um, uh, benefits are often very good, when even when pay is—I know this is often true in the education sector, public teachers. Um, it's not that the, the pay is— standard or middling, but the benefits tend to be pretty good. Um, so I, this is obviously a, a private union, so the difference might be not the same thing. So this is a little bit more detail about the pay wage increase that's been offered. This is from the New York Times. The automakers have been offered wage increases of more than 20 percent over four years. So again, I think that's when the inflation comes in. Um, it's not automatic, which would have a bigger impact. They also have agreed to shorten the time from four to eight, uh, from four years to four years from eight years. Uh, that it takes a new worker to rise up from the entry-level wage of about $17 an hour to the highest-level wage of $32 an hour. We talked about this in the earlier wave of the UAW strikes, that having tiered employees uh, where earlier, um, younger, newer employees are not paid at the same tier as people who have been working there a longer period of time is another technique that businesses use to um, create divisions between workers and animosity between workers and prevents them from striking. So having a less tiered pay scale has been a part of the negotiations um, in the first round of the companies that we the big three companies that we were discussing earlier. And it'll be interesting to see if that continues to emerge as an issue here with um, Mack Truck. You're saying the well. union does not want it tiered like that. Yes. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because I think often uh, the uh, well the, the workers who've been there Longest and are most involved in the union. I mean, do they they do want they want better pay than workers starting out, right? No, absolutely not. I mean that percep perception 
for reasons that you just described. It hurts people's desire to be in a union. It hurts people's sense of solidarity across the unions. And when people are st standing side by side together doing the exact same job on the exact same um, line, and they know that the person next to them Why is should be tiered at all. Shouldn't, shouldn't they just pay they... whoever's the most effective more money at it? Or I mean, they, you should be paid for your job. The job. Mm -hmm. Everyone who's earning, working the same job should be, get, be getting the same amount of money. But that is not the system that many of these companies have implemented for exactly the purpose of destroying any solidarity among the workforce. And that is why that has been a real um, sticking point in negotiations across these UAW actions, labor actions. Well, here's a problem I see. If they have to pay um, younger people or more, or more junior employees or more newer employees um, th the same as more senior people, isn't that an incentive not to hire new people at all because you can't trust that they're enough to justify that? It's more if I hire someone to work the line and you're still doing that same job five years later, then why is it that you have to work a certain period of time to opt into some of the pay and benefits that accrue mm -hmm. only later on? And that's what gets people feeling its feelings of you know animus mm -hmm. toward their coworkers and less likely to be willing to strike as a union, as a whole group, and actually shut down the workforce and get higher wages for everybody involved. I mean, involved. if I'm an employer, I probably want some flexibility on how much I pay people when they're starting out in order to see if they're any good at the job. If I have to hire them at a minimum salary, I might say, well, I can't take the chance for that amount of money, but I'll take the chance for a less amount of money. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess that's uh, I didn't, I didn't know that hire, hiring people to do the same job, people who are doing the same job should get the same pay, was going to be an especially uh, controversial well, take, Robbie. But. Yeah, well, I mean, people who are better at it should get more. I mean, it, maybe it's, it's exactly the, the same work. If that's not the question. I think a different question about bonus pay, et cetera. First of all, I think it's fantastical. I don't think that people are getting uh, bonus pay for a lot of these um, a lot of these jobs. This isn't a, an ex, an, a, mm -hmm. a, a law firm. These aren't. This isn't the kind of um, white collar employment situation where there are a ton of financial incentives in that way. I remember um, a friend of mine's father worked on the assembly line uh, in Detroit at an auto manufacturer for his entire life. And I remember him telling me that his job was to. He kind of would throw windshields onto the conveyor belt, you know, mm -hmm. and every now and again. And a windshield would, would slide off and break, and it would be at a cost to the company. And he invented some kind of trackpad that could go on the thing that basically eliminated that cost to the company, and how he calculated that how much money the company must have made over the course of his life from that innovation, and how they rewarded him with like a Starbucks gift card or something. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the reality that people are experiencing in these companies. They care about their work. They care about the quality of the cars they produce. They're invested in it. They, they, they're proud of their labor, and it's just not reflected in the way they're treated by management. It just isn't. Um, so we'll, of course, keep an eye on this uh, newest moment of solidarity, 4,000 4, 4, 4, Mack truck employees joining the rest of the UAW workers on strike. Stick around. We'll have more rising for you right after this. Conservative media giant Tucker Carlson denounced several prominent Republicans, namely Nikki Haley and Lindsey Graham, and also Congressman Dan Crenshaw, for their reactions to what's going on between Israel and Hamas. Let's watch. This was an attack on America, she says, when in fact it was not. And for that reason, we must, quote, finish Iran, a nation of nearly 90 million people. What are we watching here? This is not sober leadership. 
She's a child, and this is the tantrum of a child, ignorant, cocksure, bloodthirsty. Yet no one in Washington scolded her for it. He also tore into Graham and Crenshaw, who went a step further, urging Israel to bomb Iran. Take a look. What exactly would happen to the United States if we declared war on Iran and started blowing up their infrastructure? Lindsey Graham has no clue what would happen. He hasn't thought it through. He's almost 70 years old and he has no children. He doesn't care. But neither, amazingly, do most of his colleagues in Washington. They're as reckless as he is. Texas Congressman Dan Crenshaw took to social media to call for what he described as a war to end all wars, as if there is such a thing. Yeah, I mean, this is a, a great example of why I thought um, Tucker Carlson's influence on the discourse on the right um, was very often a good, a positive thing, you know, despite him getting uh, thrown off Fox News for whatever reason. Um, he is someone who, who was a thought leader on the very different non-interventionist ascendancy on the right that replaced the kind of neoconservatism that had existed um, during the aughts. And I think that's a, a very good impulse. It was positive for many, uh, some Republicans at least, who have uh, rediscovered the, the anti-war roots of their own philosophy, of their own party, which you know, did constitute the Republican Party for many, at many points in history, in American history. And Tucker was a leading voice calling for—he criticized Trump during the Soleimani killing. He was very skeptical of, of uh, unlimited funding for Ukraine from the get-go. And uh, here he is, you know, he's not, not making light—I don't support and do not think at all, and in fact have criticized today people who I think have made light of the atrocities. But you can be you can and should be outraged by what happened is totally distinct for what the U.S. government should do about it, and whether the U.S. government is obligated. And the U.S. government is not some 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 entity that exists apart from us. It is reliant on our our funding. It is our money. It is our tax dollars that that comprise what it does. Does it make the world safer for the U.S. government to be more involved in this conflict or the Ukrainian conflict or any number of conflicts occurring in? in Asia, Africa, South America, all over the world, um, most, many, I, I don't know what exact number of Republican voters don't want us to be the world police anymore, have repudiated that, that tendency in, uh, that was only popular among the leaders of the Republican Party, the elites. Tucker Carlson was a brave voice against them, and I'm glad to see him speaking up here again. Yeah, he starts this video by obviously condemning the horror of civilians being killed in Israel. And he does focus his critique on the funding issue. Now, you know, he doesn't weigh in on the underlying crisis, but, you know, many people noted that this, he is becoming a lone voice on the right with respect to Israel. While there was a cohort of people who were willing to criticize unlimited funding, uh, unlimited funding to Ukraine, it just is not the same scenario, so much so that Josh Hawley tweeted yesterday, uh, quote, Israel is facing an existential threat. Any funding for Ukraine should be redirected to Israel immediately. I mean, there's just not even a beat, not even right. a pause here. And I do think yeah, that it's the— It's not his money. It's not the Ukrainians' money. It's not the Israelis' money. It's the American people's money. Yeah. And I, <laughs> there is—I do think that there is something—I mean, I, I got to just put a footnote in that I don't think that that's, that's not how we fund wars. That's not how we fund anything. It's not taxpayer money that's literally going to this. We have um, uh, unprecedented— uh, 
fiscal independence and the ability to print money and do whatever we want. And that is exactly how we fund all of these multi-trillion dollar forever wars. That being said, the choice to use the money that we can print to fund destruction and killing and disasters all over the world instead of addressing domestic problems, I think, is a legitimate complaint. And it's worth noting that in this very interview, uh, Tucker Carlson finishes his monologue and then goes on to interview Vivek Ramaswamy, who, despite, again, being one of these people who is willing to be critical of unlimited funding to Ukraine, believes that we should stand with Israel because they are our allies and does not complicate that at all. Yeah, and he had said uh, quite the opposite during one of the debates, I believe. He had, he had specifically he he said for it. Israeli um, uh, funding for Israel should be, you know, no different than any other um, nation. Um, I mean, look, obviously, yes, we print money to, you know, for our wars. I mean, uh, a lot of ec economists think, a lot of people of my philosophy think that if we just endlessly print money to fund everything we want to do, that's how you end up devaluing your currency and having runaway inflation and having a lot of, you know, problems down the line. You're right that we do. It's not literally a pot of, like, a finite amount of gold or something. Yeah. Um, but it's more about, but, I mean, the money is taken from the American taxpayer. You do pay taxes, and it's more about, uh, from my standpoint, people not People may agree with what's, you know, may uh, agree with—you're welcome to, you know, mail a check to whatever government or foreign cause you think is important, if that's how you feel. But these out-of-touch politicians asserting it on behalf of all of us—and again, where's the evidence that this is benefiting American national security, or honestly benefiting um, Israeli national security or anyone on any side of these conflicts? Um, you, so, speaking of the Republicans who are talking about redirecting fundings from, from Ukraine to Israel, I, I do, you know, want to remind people that at the start of the Ukraine-Russia conflict, there was a lot of, uh, of support, even among Josh Hawley-type people. I, I can't remember exactly what his earliest statements, but it was either him or you know, one of the other more natconny people who might be skeptical of this sort of thing. They were supportive at the beginning, but then I think they read, you know, they read the tea leaves in terms of what Republican primary voters actually think, and they changed their tune. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, how they feel about massively increasing the amount of money we're sending for Israel's military budget, um, you know, a couple of weeks from now. Yeah. You know, interestingly, as we're speaking, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy just tweeted, he quote tweeted the Tucker interview and offered uh, perhaps more context for his remarks in that interview. I don't mm -hmm. know if he was getting pushback from people who were pointing out that his statement seemed to suggest some hypocrisy on the funding issue. But he just tweeted out this statement. It's a little bit, a little bit lengthy, but I think it's worth just for the record, to Go say ahead. what he really believes. He says, the Hamas-led attacks on Israel were barbar barbaric and cannot be condoned. We require a rational response that supports Israel while avoiding another U.S.-led disaster in the Middle East. I am disappointed and deeply concerned by the remarks of certain presidential candidates, including Nikki Haley, who have irresponsibly called the Hamas attack an, quote, attack on America, and rapidly shout, finish them, all caps, uh, repeatedly without offering a pragmatic path forward. The U.S. should provide Israel with diplomatic support, intelligence sharing, and necessary munitions to defend its homeland while taking special care to avoid a broader regional war in the Middle East that would not advance U.S. interests. And then he has a five-point suggestion. One, offer Israel robust intelligence support and stand ready to provide additional military supplies, both for sale and transfer, which suggests military right. aid. Two, immediately confirm an American ambassador to Israel with the vacant embassies in Egypt, Libya, and Oman to be filled in quick succession. Three, end all further nuclear proliferation in the Middle East. Four, fast-track the deportation of any resident aliens who have served with Hamas or Palestinian Islamic Jihad. 
five, work with Israel to identify countries willing to accept peaceful Palestinians who wish to escape the pressures of Hamas and facilitate immigration. Not to hear, I suppose. And six, <laughs> warn the UN of yeah. consequences if its historical pattern of drawing false equivalences between Israel and the terrorists who target it. I mean, that's a better statement than I think what he said. Um, you don't think it's still just using a lot of words to say fund, contribute U.S. funding to the well, conflict? If they, if I don't object position. to if, if Israel wants to buy um, supplies or weapons or whatever from U.S. companies, I don't have, just like anyone else, yeah, that's not none of my business or none of our government's business. That's fine with me. Yeah, both sale a, and yeah, transfer. A donation is where, again, a donation, a donation of our, of the American tax payers' dollars is where I draw the line. Yeah. They want to buy it like anyone else, that's fine. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing him perhaps give some more interviews directly on that subject, along with all the other GOP presidential candidates and Democratic presidential candidates and independent presidential <laughs> candidates. Stick with, stick with us. We'll have more Rising Up next. Many New York lawmakers are condemning a pro-Palestinian rally that was held at Times Square on Sunday after Hamas militants operated a deadly attack on Israel over the weekend that we've discussed at great length today and yesterday on the show. Now, this backlash toward the rally was due in part to videos circulating on social media that showed speakers at this rally announcing the number of rockets launched into Israel by Hamas and the crowd appearing to cheer as a result. Just note we don't have permission to air this video, but we did watch it ourselves. The rally was promoted but not organized by the New York City chapter of the Democratic Socialist of America. Card-carrying member, New York Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, commented on the rally, saying, The bigotry and callousness expressed in Times Square on Sunday were unacceptable and harmful in this devastating moment. It also did not speak for the thousands of New Yorkers who are capable of rejecting both Hamas's horrifying attacks against innocent civilians, as well as the grave injustices and violence Palestinians face under occupation. And New York Governor Kathy Hochul condemned everyone involved, according to Politico, and spoke at a We Stand with Israel rally in Albany. Now, according to Politico, New York City's DSA Steering Committee member Nadia Tykolsker said the group promoted the event at the request of a coalition partner because we believe in equality and justice for all Palestinians and Israelis. We know that war will take more lives. The group opposes harming and targeting civilians, she added. It is shameful that politicians in our state are exploiting this moment to target a socialist organization and divide the vibrant left in New York. Yeah, leftists are frustrated. That's not the right word. Very disappointed and angry at AOC for making these remarks. And I can understand why. The video that we're unable to play does have a uh, speaker at the event um, talking about not the death of civilians or anything that is a, a war crime, but talking about the value of a resistance. And as we talked at length about on the show, part of the issue is that there's been a Pied Piper effort by people like Benjamin Netanyahu to make sure that secular, um, non-militant groups don't have uh, can't survive or don't exist anymore in any real meaningful way. That's probably an overstatement, but are, have been suppressed in Palestine, leading to the rise of Hamas, who uh, you know extremists in Israel see as a, a good uh, bet noir to focus uh, attacks in the killing of Palestinian civilians that has been going on for years without hardly any notice from the mainstream media. The occupied status of Palestine has been recognized by almost every country except for America and its Western European allies. And it is true under 
uh, international law that occupied peoples have a right to resist. Now, they do not have a right to target and kill civilians. The right to resist of an occupied people is still contingent on the boundaries of other kinds of international law, including prohibitions against targeting and killing civilians. And if anybody at that rally did that, they absolutely should be condemned. I mean, they were, but that's not what we saw in the clip. They were cheering the indiscriminate firing of rockets into Israel. It was a pro-Hamas rally. It was a, clearly a, that, a rally in true. support of the violent actions taken by a terrorist it's organization. It's absolutely it was, it was, accurate was, for AOC to denounce it, obviously. Okay. It, it, was a, it was not a pro-peace rally. It was you, want, a you, rally. Have, you can have a pro-peace rally. It's not a pro-peace rally. It's a, it's a rally in, in— I know it's in, not a pro-peace rally. In, in that would be appropriate of the to do. ongoing occupation of Palestine. That's not, it's not peace to return to what was going on a week ago. There are two million people, half of whom are children, who are living in an open-air prison where not all, but some— Israeli citizens regularly dump trash on the, their raining from the sky. Like 90 plus percent of the water supply is tainted. There is an an an, a, a, an over a confluent uh, um, an abundance of liver diseases because of the polluted nature of the of the water in the area. The entire pop half the population is food insecure. Half the population is unemployed. Over half the population uh, is unemployed. And they're in an open and, air and a terrorist prison. group just so, yes, dragged people from their homes to be used as hostages. And, and these is, people are applauding it. No, they don't. They, I just just literally spent three minutes explaining that that video, which we cannot play, does not do any such thing. Now, if there's some other part of the video that was not captured, where people were saying it's good to kill civilians, AOC should and everyone should condemn that. But applauding yeah, I, a resistance— I don't, I don't support Hamas's military— Actions again. Nor do I support the Israeli government occupation. And, and you can be against both and things, and that would be, I think, a but great subject for a rally to have. That's sitting, not what they're sitting doing. around saying we're against both things, but we don't support people's right to resist the oppression that you say performatively that you're ex against is exactly the problem. And we see Hochul and the rest of these New York representatives going to. Israel pro-Israel rallies. They've never once in their life gone to a pro-Palestine rally. They've never once in their life used the words and their their platform and their privilege to articulate the harms that have been ongoing against Palestinians. On the front page of the New York Times a few days ago, the New York Times used a graphic. I hope we can throw it up. Used a graphic that illustrated how more people had been, how more Israelis had been killed over the weekend than in the last many years period, making the case about how horrible the events of the weekend were. That is true. It is also true that same chart plots Palestinian deaths. And what you can see, unremarked upon by the graphic I'm itself, not light of the is the enormous deaths. volume. That at any one instance, any one day of Palestinian death, at uh, several, uh, several points on the chart, dwarfs the number of deaths that happened over this weekend of Israeli citizens. Again, that is not to minimize the illegal and immoral nature of targeting and killing civilians. But it is rich to say, I'm sorry, after you have an occupied people in that condition, in those conditions for years, to say they shouldn't, that, that there's not an, an, a desire to celebrate a resistance. The, the words that were used in that clip was celebrating I mean, a resistance which is legal they're, under well, international law. And now their civilians are dying, their buildings are being destroyed in retaliatory strikes. What is there to celebrate? What is there to cheer? What is there to be happy about here? I don't understand it. I don't. I think that's, this is a very sad weekend. Evident. I think there's a lot of. I, I think the 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 deaths on both sides of this conflict are horrible. I think the policies of the Israeli government and Benjamin Netanyahu need a lot of 
immediate scrutiny, and I'm glad they're getting scrutiny, and they've deserved him for a long time. Scrutiny? They've gotten the full-fledged well, support of the United States and all of well, the West. I, well, how many times the White have House, I said they shouldn't have that? The White House is bathed in blue and white in support of Israel, and not a mumbling word has been said about the precious lives of, of Palestinians that have been lost, not just over the weekend, and not just as a result of the retaliatory strikes, I don't, where Benjamin Netanyahu and that leading Some people are unwilling to talk about, about the, la the loss of lives among Palestinians, and other people are unwilling to talk people, about the loss of lives among Israelis. Those people include people like Kathy Hochul and New York leadership, who will grandstand and condemn uh, a speaker at an event without saying a mumbling word about the underlying righteousness of the cause of Palestinian res resistance. If she had said something like that, and if AOC, frankly, who has said things like that in the past, but apparently not in this context, then they wouldn't be getting the flack that they're getting right now. Another thing I will say is that I've attended these kinds of rallies where people just will, sh like, you're invi they're inviting people from various groups up to podiums, mm -hmm. and it's catch-as-catch-can. I went to some rallies over... Um, uh, after the Dobbs hearing in front of the White House, listening to what people had to say. And they are, can be very ad hoc. I'm sure you remember during the women's protest, Madonna got in a bunch of trouble for saying something like, let's burn it all down. Something like, let's well, burn sure. the White I mean, House, something like that. She criticized for that. I mean, I'm right. thinking of the... But that, the, doesn't, that doesn't mean that everyone at the rally endorsed, well, endorses sure, that. obviously not. But, even, the, even though people cheered because they were mad about Trump or whatever, that isn't, it's not necessarily as literal as people are trying to make I it I think of this way. You remember the rally? There was a rally for peace in the Ukraine-Russia conflict that uh, some people who appeared on our show spoke at, I believe, again, my oh, former co-host Kim Iverson. Well, anti-war rally. Right. But there, were some, yeah. there was criticism that I think was deserved, not of the entire rally, but there was a the, like a there was a pro-Russian element that was not appropriate because this should be a rally about peace. And well, I would similarly think I remember well, controversy there was a Russian flag. Jr. And I remember controversy around there was um, Scott Ritter. There was controversy around a, who didn't a group end up speaking. Um, who had a, who were waving like a Russian flag, who were not for peace but in support of a Russian victory in the conflict. I don't know, man. I, I I'm I'm really struggling with this because. Again, if there's a longer video, but the clip that we watched in advance of this was someone saying, resist, I, I, I'm happy, I'm from an occupied people, excited about the prospect of resistance actually liberating us from the open air prison we've been living in for generations. And this, this whole discourse does have the feel that even the both sidesism of, of, of killing everybody is wrong, obviously killing civilians is always wrong, but there is a way that a, a Israeli retaliation is considered to be justified because it is militarized, because I'm it's wrapped it's in. Justified. I'm not talking about anything. Nothing. Let me caveat. All that's about to come out of my mouth is not a reflection on anything that you, Robbie Suave, have ever said or <laughs> believed. But the media coverage and the response that you're seeing from politicians seems to understand that a state. How many times do we say this? Israel has a right to defend itself. Israel has the right to defend itself. But at no point, despite the clear edict of international law are those words used in reference to Palestine and Palestine's right to defend itself. And what international law makes clear is that if there has been a good faith effort for peaceful resolution, that actual revolution, that armed militant revolution is justified. I'm reading, um, uh, you know, it's Historical evidence, this is from an, an explainer from a, a law school about Palestinian law. Historical evidence overwhelmingly supports that self-determination is rarely achieved without the use of force and armed struggle. And of course, we all have the right to self-determination. Failing to acknowledge resistant movements would lead to an illogical situation. Alien occupations would go unchallenged, rendering any resistance to illegal, um, sorry, rendering nil mm -hmm. any resistance to the illegal status itself. 
I mean, people have to wrestle with that. And there's going to be messiness as people celebrate after decades of inaction and decades of their own people, including children, being killed and, yes, targeted. Remember, this is a population that's literally 50% children. That this looks like a, a movement in some direction that's, that's different than the status quo. I guess I would approach it from the realm of what are the practical effects. I find it very unlikely that um, even, even it, it, being as maximally charitable to the to Hamas, I guess, that this is some liberatory effort. I find it very unlikely this is going to result in improved conditions for Palestinians. In fact, the the immediate result is widespread destruction and in Palestine. Right. Targeting so this uh, is not a good idea. White phosphorus, which is a, another war crime. Yeah, I agree. But that that to me is I feel the same way about these immigration discussions. That to me is evidence of how bad conditions are that people are willing to make those kinds of take those kinds of risks. If you, I mean, I'm sorry. It's like it's like telling. I don't mean to be, I don't I don't mean to be this person, but it's like telling someone who's about to try to escape escape their slave plantation. Well, if you get caught, they're going to beat you and your family and maybe kill you too and chop off your leg. Well, hell's bells. So at some point, it's worth it to flee because you don't want to be a GD slave for the rest of your life. You don't want your children taken away from you. You don't want generations of your family to be subject to that kind of oppression. And that seems, I think, obvious to a lot of people who are really wrapping their brains around the level of oppression that's ongoing in Palestine. But if you don't, if you're not coming from that perspective, if you're not, if you haven't been paying attention to what's been going on in Palestine until, I'm sorry, until Israeli lives were the ones that were implicated in this, and those precious Israeli lives should not have been taken. Innocent civilians should—killing uh, them is a hate crime. Uh, so, sorry, is a, okay. is a So we can crime. have we can have social change, maybe, possibly, as a result of years, decades, centuries of violent struggle, or hopefully we can have social change as a result of nonviolent protest when, and when has that civil been successful? disobedience. And that when has did been that successful. work? That's ridiculous, there's a, Robbie. There's a history of— Nobody you're saying that America should have peacefully wave, wo woven signs at the British until they left us alone. I mean, Nobody's saying most that we countries should have abolished just... slavery not as a result of a Ours violence. Ours didn't. Ours <laughs> didn't, but most of them abolished slavery as a result of a no. democratic process. No. and a... That is also not true. There were people, there were a slave uprising. It's, the Haitian rebellion was a, a, a. It's the killing of every non black person on the island. No, they didn't kill every non black person on the island. They killed their oppressors and very notably right. declined to kill the Polish population there. Right. We, can have, in a, we can have medieval with their violence movement. among groups that dislike each it's other for called, forever, or we can have. It's only called medieval violence and barbarism when it's historically black and brown people and historically marginalized groups who are rising up against their colonial oppressors. No, it's called medieval violence. Exactly people are being dragged are from their homes and taking hostages, which has rightly outraged everyone, including AOC. And was it medieval violence when, as we discussed yesterday with our guest, who tried to say it was barbaric for Palestinians to be keeping Israelis in cages, not realizing that the footage he was talking about was Palestinian babies of in cages? Of course it was barbaric. He, but he did not. He would not acknowledge that. Well, he would not turn around and use those words. Those words, Ed, Edward Said's entire oeuvre is dedicated to this exact principle, that that that, that Orientalism, that, that, that characterizing certain populations in certain terms has been used as a technique, a technique since time immemorial to justify 
harm violence against them that is not seen right. as legitimate when it's against white people. Right now, violence against a group is being justified. It is being literally justified. Violence against the Israelis is no, what is being justified. No, ongoing occupation of Palestinians is being justified if you strip for them All right. their right I don't right think violence is justified. End of sentence. I, I disagree with that. International law says that revolutionary action. Uh, you who thought somebody when there's cars being stolen from them shouldn't have been able to react to that or or or, or have some conflict Wait, the person doing it. Going back to in our in our in our conversations about the alleged vigilantism in the American context, I was like, no, the person should do nothing. They shouldn't resist. They shouldn't what fight back at all. What are you talking about? We've talked about this before. Cars and vigilante. What are you talking about? The person about? in D.C. who who shot at someone who was stealing their car. Remember are you that? are you making an analogy of a person shooting a child because they believe they were going on a joyride? The same thing as a group of occupied two million people in an open air prison. Violent. Saying after off years of negotiations that have been thwarted and ignored, peaceful protest. The, the, the march of the protest back, what was it, 2014, 2012-2014, where they were, the peaceful pro Palestinian protesters were shot at by IDF shoulders, uh, soldiers for peacefully protesting against the border wall. You're saying that after all of those efforts, finally there being a moment of largely, some, some of it was illegal and against uh, international law, but some of it, international law validates a Revel, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Ocu Some of it was illegal downplays it a little bit, I think. I'm, I'm happy to stay here and, and sit uh, and go through the names of every single Israeli person that was killed, who was an innocent, and lament that loss of life. I'm happy to sit here and spend an well, hour of our airtime to do that, because I have no hesitation in mourning that. But what I'm not hearing is an equal willingness to talk, to sit in the immorality for a second of keeping two million people, one million children in an open air prison for multiple generations, while somebody who immigrated from Brooklyn or Baltimore I know, that's just gets not to being, sit in their grandfather's house. That's not. That's just not being justified on our show, at least. It's being, being justified by people out there well, who criticize them. Well, that's what we're talking them, about. So. This is, we do a lot of media criticism, yeah. and this is some of it. Well, I think the but media's this, this approach to this whole issue has been reprehensible. And, and I think that the real, the real tragedy here is all that loss of life that happened on the weekend, including all the lo loss of those precious Israeli lives, would not have happened. And this is what... The Haaretz newspaper in Israel editorial board is saying, and it was reflective of what the Harvard uh, students groups letter also said, would not have happened. That would they're not have solely been in and entirely responsible. Would not have happened. Would not That's be in the situation if Bibi Netanyahu and that right-wing government were intent on keeping an occupied population in those conditions until they reached a boiling point. Yeah. And if you want the bloodshed to stop, if you want there to be peace in this region, then you have to address that root causes. And if you just think that bombing the more civilian populations in Palestine to smithereens, as has been just happening— as Yes, I agree with that. Just as bombing more—bombing and taking hostages of civilian populations in is Israel it, is it, not going to solve—there's not going to be any resol peaceful resolution to this conflict as long as both sides are continuing to engage in retaliatory violence, so they should stop. That's true of the Israeli government. And, they should be very and, careful with what they, they do should, right now. And they need to end the occupation in Gaza. Of course. All right. Well, saying that— We don't—the policy but, we don't disagree but, 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 on. But, Robbie, so this, is, this is important, because Cory Bush's statement— Literally, 80% of it was lamenting, rightly so, the tragic, tragic loss of life of Israeli well, I don't Israeli think I citizens. criticized your statement. I'm criticizing what they did at this rally and what the Harvard what students did. What was my said. caveat, Robbie? All right. You're okay. not talking to me. 
But she's still getting railroaded yeah. because there was like one line saying we need to end the occupation in Palestine. Don't lose sight of the ball. The reason that people are are mad at this protest is not because of one woman decided to get up there and say, oh, I, I didn't like, uh, I, I, I'm excited about the revolution, I'm excited about bombs falling in liber the liberation of Palestine. The underlying concern is a shift, What that public opinion will shift in a way that validates a, a shift in, in U.S. policy against the occupation. I mean, people are criticizing the students and the activists there because students and activists are goofy, like cosplaying as Che Guevara's while sipping their lattes, and it's just like a time. A lot of these time groups were Arab criticism, American groups and Palestinian groups. I don't. I think they have a sincere and personally invested interest. And there was a lot of black groups in there in solidarity with them. I think because of the acknowledgement and understanding of what it means to be an oppressed group in the situation. It's also. I think it's very easy to say I violence Ireland is justified and good from your place of of relative extreme safety in America. I mean, I think that's really rich when there's lines of, of, of um, Israelis who have the privilege of getting on the plane and coming back to America, where they also have citizenship, because they are part of a occupied uh, settler regime. Yeah. Like, that, that is part of what we're talking about here. It's also worth noting that Ireland, this isn't about race, white and black, Ireland was one of the only countries in the EU who... Uh, uh, was objecting to a withdrawal of aid to Palestine over this because they also have their own personal legacy of oppression. Why they shouldn't give aid to Palestine? They shouldn't just like humanitarian we shouldn't give aid, aid, aid should be Israel. cut to this. this I population. would cut all the aid to the foreign. I okay. mean, it's their money, not ours. But it's two million people. That's totally hypocritical. We should not. We. Sh I mean, they, it's their money. They can it's do whatever they want with it. Humanitarian aid. Well, We're I would not, cut all of that the too. The issue isn't humanitarian aid to Israel. Israel's not getting humanitarian aid. They're getting bombs and weaponry from America. They're getting Iron Dome funding. Yeah. I would end all of our foreign aid for <laughs> various causes, and I suggest, I suspect the American people agree with me, but. All right. I don't think Amer the American people want a million Palestinian children to starve or to be in conditions, Israel has shut off power to, to the Gaza Strip? Well, I mean, well that's different. That's, that's what they're doing. I'm just, like, it's, it's, our, it's, it's our stuff. does not belong to anyone else, anywhere else in the world. It's ours. I, I, I don't take that position, but right, you know, well. I, I, think this was, I think this was useful. Because I do think it's important. I, 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 hope, I hope to give some articulation to why there feels to be a reluctance. It's all about this asymmetry that it's getting erased by a both sides are bad argument. And of course, both sides are bad under international law when it comes to killing human beings, but what, uh, sorry, civilians. But what needs to be acknowledged is that an oppressed people under international law does have the right to resist. And sometimes that's gonna take the form of being led by an, an, a terrorist group like Hamas, right. especially when the occupying country has worked overtime to suppress any more legitimate political factions from really having um, uh, dominance. All right. Well, we got to leave it there. Tomorrow on Rising, we will probably be talking about this again. Fantastic. And uh, in other news, we're actually bringing back an old tradition of answering your questions in the form of Rising Ask Me Anything. This is the first I'm hearing about this. You must have made this deal while I was away. You said, this, uh, this help Robbie me. with questions. I'm just a contract employer. This was a management <laughs> decision above my head. No, we will look forward to asking, uh, to answering your questions. Uh, probably most of them will be about Dungeons and Dragons, I assume. Uh, we'll be doing that on YouTube Sunday mornings at 11 a.m.
Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. For those of you who like to listen while you're on the go, we are now avail available anywhere you listen to podcasts. See you tomorrow. Take care.